Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Okay, welcome back to another uh, Behind the Knife, uh, Behind the Ab Site, if you will, Behind the Knife Ab Site Review. We're back again with a good friend everybody should know and love by this point, uh, Dr. Matthew Martin. Dr. Martin, thanks for joining us again yep, today. Know no and love or know and hate, one of the, <laughs> one of the above. Uh, either or, hot or cold, <laughs> not in between. Um, today we're covering, it's going to be rapid, we're covering three seemingly unrelated topics, but they're all high-yield ab site topics. We're, so we're covering a lot of ground today. We're going to cover bariatrics. We're going to cover spleen, and we're going to cover uh, acute care pancreas. Uh, so let's get started. Yeah, Dr. They're Martin. all in the abdomen. They're, they're related. <laughs> there and, you go. And don't forget, we have Dr. Cockleman with us. Oh, yeah. Should, should need no introduction. Dr. John Cockleman is back with us today. John, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. And, and most people are lukewarm about me. <laughs> okay. Well, let, let's, let's jump in. High-yield ab site. Uh, we'll start with some bariatric stuff and, and I imagine bariatric is going to be an increasing component of the exam as it becomes an increasing component of most training programs. So we'll, we'll start real quickly. Uh, all bariatric operations in the, the traditional view work by one of two mechanisms and what are those mechanisms? So that is either they're usually either restrictive or they're malabsorptive uh, or a combination of the two. Okay, so they're either restrictive or they're a combination, restrictive malabsorptive. We really don't do any pure malabsorptive operations anymore. So what would be our restrictive options? Uh, so like a sleep gastrectomy. Okay. And, or, or a gastric bypass, LGB. No, just purely restrictive. Oh, purely restrictive. Uh, your uh, uh, lap band, uh, vertical banded gastroplasty. Yep, so lap band and a sleeve would be the two today. And then combined, restrictive malabsorptive. So uh, your laparoscopic, or your I'm sorry, gastric bypasses, uh, your duodenal switches. Yeah, so that would be the two that are commonly done today: bypass or duodenal switch. Okay, and and if if I said the the 2017 view of how these operations actually work uh, beyond restrictive and malabsorptive, uh, I think that there are people. Uh, and, and some good literature that suggests that there's a hormonal component. Yeah, so neurohormonal, all of the operations, actually ex probably except for the band, seem to affect the neurohumoral response. And some of the key medi mediators of that that have been identified are ghrelin and leptin and several others. If anyone shows up on a, a question, you might get a question maybe about ghrelin or leptin. So those are, the, those are the two ways any bariatric operation works. So we'll talk about a bariatric patient who comes in, and they're going to give you a patient who had some kind of bariatric surgery recently, and they come in, and they have either peritonitis or sepsis or hemodynamic instability. What are you going to do with that patient? Well, I'm going to stabilize them first off. Uh, with a, but what's a, the answer on the abscite going to be? Oh, it's going to be a leak. What's the answer going to be to do? Oh, CT scan then? It's going to be to take them to the operating room. Yeah, perfect. Right? So, so if they give you a patient who's got uh -oh. peritonitis, sepsis, or hemodynamic instability, the answer choices are going to be, you know, admit, antibiotics, get a CT scan, or go to the R-Explorum. The answer is going to be go to, go to the R-Explorum. And if it's anything else, then it's a diagnostic workup driven by the bariatric history and symptoms. Okay, gastric banding. I, I don't imagine there will be a lot of questions on gastric banding. Um, if there is, uh, it might be a question about a slipped band. So if they give you a patient who had a gastric band and they're coming in and now they can't swallow, what's your workup going to be? Uh, well, the workup's going to include a uh, plain film to look at the angle of the gastric band. Um, and uh, most more often than not, you end up deflating that band. Um, and that Good. will there. often relieve their symptoms. There's your answer. So a plain x-ray or a floral swallow study. And you want to look at that angle of the band. It's called the phi angle. And it's basically if you draw a line straight through the spine from head to toe and then an angle straight through the middle of the band, that should be 58 degrees or less. If it's more than that, that indicates a slip band. And the treatment that you just said? Deflate the band. Good. Almost all band problems, your first move, if they ask you what's the first thing to do, deflate the band, and that will generally relieve the symptoms in a lot of these. If it doesn't relieve the symptoms, then it's usually the next step is to the operating room to remove the band. And I, and I don't think you'd get asked much else about a band. 
I've seen the or I've uh, the um, port site infection. I've seen that asked before. What's often the first sign of an eroded band? Um, and I've seen a, a port site infection. That's a great one, yeah. And, and if you have a port site infection, then your workup next is to see if that band is eroded, which will usually be an endoscopy, a CT scan initially, and then an endoscopy. And and again, you usually just need to remove that fluid from the band. Okay, sleeve gastrectomy. So real quickly, why don't you tell us about the anatomy of a sleeve gastrectomy? John? So the way we typically describe this to patients is that we are going to take uh, their stomach, which is a wine sack, and make it into a banana. So we are doing a resection of the uh, lateral portion of the stomach. Okay. And what are the complications you're worried about? So first, uh, if I'm concerned about uh, a patient at all, uh, the first three things I'm thinking of are a leak. A leak and then a leak. Um, It is the most feared complication of, of a sleeve gastrectomy. Okay. And so if you're going to probably talk about your top two complications that you're worried about or that are common, one would be leak and the other would be? A bleed. Leak and bleeding from the staple lines. Good. And, and this goes for by, sleeve or bypass. Any patient who they give you who comes in and they're, they're just not doing normally, and especially they're having tachycardia, fever, abdominal pain, that is a leak until proven otherwise. And beware of pulmonary symptoms, too, because those, those can often mask a leak. They'll come in with maybe tachycardia and some shortness of breath, and you'll go down the PE avenue, but it's often a leak. So let's say they give you a patient who's post-op day three from a gastric bypass. They're, they have a fever. They're tachycardic. They have epigastric pain. And you get a gastrograph and swallow, and it shows no leak. What is your abscite answer going to be? Well, I, I still want to rule out uh, a leak at this point. So what is your abscite answer going to be? Uh, a CT leak study, since it has a, a better sensitivity for so, that. So, so on the abscite, again, when they give you this patient and they <laughs> give you a, a traditional swallow study, that's the, the, the message is no imaging study rules out a leak, and especially early after surgery. If they have signs of a leak, you should be re-exploring them. So, so, the, so the abscite answer is going to be either, and it's going to either be a laparoscopic exploration or an open exploration, but the answer is you explore them for a leak. So if you have a high suspicion for a leak, uh, even with absent imaging findings, you're going you're gonna to explore those yes. patients. And why is that? How because, good is imaging for leaks? And especially if they give you a swallow study. Uh, it's swallow study. not very good, around 20%, I yeah. think. Well, it, it's about 70%, but it'll miss 30% of leaks. How can you increase the sensitivity? You just mentioned it. Uh, we would do a CT scan. Yeah, then. so the, the highest sensitivity is combining it with a CT swallow. That's still not 100%. So the, best, the baseline message is it will miss some leaks. If they have signs of a leak, you should be taking them back for a re-exploration. Okay, and let's talk about a sleeve leak. Where do they usually happen? So they usually happen uh, in the more proximal portion of the stomach. Yeah, how proximal? Usually around the angle of his. Yeah, so it's usually right at the GE junction, which makes them very hard to manage. And why is that? Uh, that is where the least amount of blood supply is after your resection. Yeah, so it's the thinnest and avascular part. And what else might predispose them to a leak? If, you're, uh, if your resection uh, is too close to your uh, incisura, then you can have uh, a, a backup of, of gastric contents. Yeah. So, so if you narrowed the sleeve, if you cause a stricture. So any sleeve leak, it's almost always at that proximal location. In addition to identifying the leak, you have to be worried about a stricture. So you need to evaluate them for that distal stricture. Okay, and we already talked about which study to get for a leak. Uh, a swallow is about 70% sensitive. CT scan improves that to 80-90%. None of those is 100%, and which is why the, the ASMBS guideline is you explore them if they have signs of a leak. Okay, let's uh, go to a gastric bypass. So real quickly, um, a gastric bypass, more restrictive or less than a sleeve? Uh, more restrictive. Yeah, much more restrictive. So it's a small gastric pouch with a gastrojejunostomy. And what's the usual uh, amount of bypass that we give them? Uh, usually you rule them as a 150, yeah, 150 so, centimeters. So anywhere to 100 and 150 centimeters. And what are the main complications we worry about with a bypass? 
Uh, so again, leak uh, leaks at the GJ more commonly, leaks at the JJ uh, staple line, um, and then with gastric bypass, high yield, you know, big complication would be an internal hernia. Good, and and if they give you so if they give you a leak, when is it going to happen? Post op day three. Okay, and if three to get, five. And if they give you an internal hernia, when's that going to happen? Uh, later. So they they had a bypass six months a year ago. Good. To come that, back that's going to be that's going to be months to years later. They give you the patient comes back with a bowel obstruction. Okay, so that goes into small bowel obstruction after prior gastric bypass. I think this is probably a question that shows up on every ab site, right? And so, so what's our rule for the patient? They had a prior gastric bypass, we'll say six months ago, they lost 90 pounds, and now they're back in the ER and they have x-ray findings of a clear small bowel obstruction, and they've had abdominal distension and, and emesis. Exploration? Okay, so what's your diagnosis? Internal hernia. Okay, and your treatment? Uh, uh, surgery. Okay, abdominal so exploration. So abdominal exploration. Re reduction of the hernia, close the mesenteric defect. Yeah, so why not treat them like every other small bowel obstruction that, that doesn't have peritonitis? Because uh, there's a high, um, high incidence of, uh, well, you can't decompress them for one. Um, Good because uh, they have dialation of their uh, BP limb, um, and there's a high incidence of uh, vascular compromise, short bowel syndrome, all that stuff. Yeah, so, so remember, the gastric remnant is no longer in continuity, so you can't decompress it. It'll decompress by rupturing into the abdominal cavity. And then again, it's an internal hernia until proven otherwise, and the clock is ticking on going from irritated bowel to ischemic bowel. So, so the, the axiom of never let the sun rise or set on a small bowel obstruction truly applies for the gastric bypass patient, um, not for the sleeve patient. Remember, they haven't had any small bowel manipulation, so that shouldn't re really be a concern. And so where can we get these internal hernias? Uh, well, you can get it at the JJ, at the mesenteric defect at the JJ. You can get it at uh, Peterson's defect, which is you know behind the mesentery of the rulum as it comes up. Um, usually anticholic. Um, if you construct your Roux-en-Y in a retrocolic fashion, you can uh, herniate through the defect in the in the um, transverse mesocolon. Good. And then, what's the way to prevent a hundred percent of those during the initial surgery? Do it open. Okay. Does that prevent a hundred percent of those? Ninety-nine point eight percent, probably. Yeah. So, um, so you're right. The incidence is higher in laparoscopic. Uh, a good mesenteric defect closure. Yeah, which we think lowers the incidence. But the the key point there is there is nothing you can do to prevent these a hundred percent, because when they lose weight, they lose fat from the mesentery. So even when you sew those defects closed perfectly, they'll open up with significant weight loss. And and real quickly, why don't you just give us a couple of the the CT scan findings that should raise your concern for an internal hernia. So this is just the patient, let's just say they're having intermittent abdominal pain. They're a year out from a bypass and they get these severe attacks of abdominal pain, nausea, emesis that then goes away. And you get a CT scan. What signs would you be looking for for an internal hernia? The first two signs I think of is the is a swirl sign in the mesentery. Good. And then uh, the second is uh, increase of dilated bowel uh, or, or increased prominence of dilated bowel on the left side. Good. And, and in the left upper quadrant Left upper quadrant, correct. Because remember, you should, not have, you should not have small bowel up in the left upper quadrant after a gastric bypass. But the most sensitive sign, as you mentioned, is the mesenteric swirl sign. If you see that, that's an internal hernia until proven otherwise. And CT scan for ruling out internal hernia, 100%. 50%, what do you think? 70 to 70 to 80%? Yeah, yeah, so it's nowhere near 100%. So the other rule is the patient with persistent unexplained abdominal pain after gastric bypass, if you've ruled out the usual things, the next step is you put a scope in them and explore them for an internal hernia. Okay, so remember, don't write these off to adhesions, a true small bowel obstruction, that should be a surgical emergency in most patients who had a prior gastric bypass. Okay, so we have to remember bariatric patients develop the same acute care surgery issues as non-bariatric patients, right? So we'll say you have a 27-year-old female, six hours of right upper quadrant pain. You get her LFT, she's got a T-bilia 4.5, an alkaline phosphatase of 520, right upper quadrant with multiple gallstones, and she's got a dilated common bile duct. Prior gastric bypass three years ago. 
Now what? So uh, here we're concerned about cholelithiasis and the key point in uh, a patient after gastric by- bypass surgery is that a uh, typical referral to gastroenterology and an ERCP is not going to be possible because of their new anatomy and uh, new location of their bank uh, of their biliopancreatic limb. Uh, so you have a couple options, but maybe the easiest and fastest would be a uh, uh, percutaneous transhepatic uh, drainage of the biliary system uh, right off the bat. Okay, so so like you said. There are some Houdini gastroenterologists who can get there, you know, going down the rulim, back through the anastomosis. Most won't. So, so you should consider ERCP is, is not really possible in these patients. And that's probably, that's probably not going to be the answer on the abside. It's is, definitely not going to be the, the answer. the Houdini G- gastroenterologist. Yeah. Or if it's one of the choices, it's going to be the wrong one. So, yeah, so you have a couple options here. And percutaneous transhepatic cholangiography is one. You, you need dilated biliary ducts, though, to use that one. What else could we do? There's really two other options. You, you could do a uh, rendezvous procedure uh, where you are accessing their gastric remnant, either laparoscopically or open, uh, and passing a scope and performing an ERCP that way. Okay, which that wouldn't really be a rendezvous. That would be a transgastric ERCP, and, and I would guess that would probably be the most likely answer if it's on the ab site. Um, you, you just put a hole in their remnant stomach, and the gastroenterologist can put the scope through and do an ERCP. It's the easiest ERCP they've ever done, and get the stones out. And then what's the third option? The third option is you, you always have the option to do a common bile duct exploration. Good. So you can do a laparoscopic or an open common bile duct exploration. Excellent. Okay. Uh, let's move on to the spleen then. So we'll talk a little bit about anatomy of the spleen. The, uh, the spleen has some named ligaments, and uh, we essentially have two that are avascular, two that are vascular. So what are our ligaments of the spleen or attachments? Uh, so you have the splenophretic uh, ligament from the spleen to the diaphragm, the splenocolic, uh, spleen to the um, splenic flexure of the colon. Those are your avascular ones. And then uh, uh, vascular, you have uh, uh, the you have um, ligaments to the stomach, and then you have your splenorenal ligament to your kidney. Good. And so what are the vessels in the gastrosplenic ligament? So those are going to be your short gastric uh, vessels. And then in the lenorenal. And so, so these can also be leno or spleno for their names. So lenocolic or splenocolic. And, and then what's the vessels in the lenosplenic uh, I believe those are going to be your uh, splenic vessels. Yeah, that's the hyalur vessels. Yeah. They're actually encased in that ligament, so splenic artery and vein. Good. So, so let's talk about the vascular anatomy real quickly. So the arterial supply to the spleen? Is what we just mentioned, your splenic artery and uh, the offshoots in the hilum of that. And then and is, splenic artery is a branch of what? Is uh, going to be part of your celiac um, trunk. Good. So to branch off the celiac, how about the short gastrics? Short gastrics are then off of your gastroepiploic. Good. Right or left? It is your right. Left. Exactly. 50-50-90. It is your left. Okay. And where is the splenic artery located? The splenic artery is just uh, posterior to your pancreas. So is it anterior, posterior, or inferior? Uh, I would call it posterior-inferior. Yeah, so no, it runs along the superior border of the pancreas. So as soon as you open the lesser sac, you should see the splenic artery running along the superior border, and, and it's easy to get to. So it, it's superior to the pancreas. Now what about the splenic vein? The splenic vein is more posterior. That's right behind the pancreas, so that one's a little harder to get to, especially proximally. And, and there's a significant amount of hyalur variation in that pattern, but it's important to know that anatomy if you're doing a splenectomy. Okay, so, so the spleen itself, uh, a little bit of drudgery anatomy. So the spleen, we generally say, is made up of a capsule and then white pulp and red pulp. So what is the white pulp composed of? White pulp is, uh, I believe it's your white blood cells. Okay, so, so there's two components of the white pulp. They talk about the periarterial arteriolar lymphatic sheath, and or the PALS. So, what's the cell type that makes up the PALS? It would be lymph tissue. So, yeah, which which lymphocytes? 
T cells or B cells? They, I believe they're T cells. Good. So PALS is T cells and follicles? Would be then B cells? The follicles are the B cells. Great. And so what's the function of the follicles? Uh, they in would those, be antibody production then. Good. Which does what for you? Which you lose when you've had a splenectomy. It gives you uh, a humoral immunity. Okay, but to what? What type of organisms? Oh, capsulated organisms. Okay, so that's that's what helps with obstinization and specifically encapsulated organisms. So, but so if you get a question about the PALS, it's T cells. The follicles is B cells. The, that's your antibody and obstinization response. How about the red pulp? Uh, so the red pulp uh, is generally involved in clearing. Uh, Senescent, what do you call it? Senescent? Senescent, senescent, uh, senescent red blood cells. Or uh, deformed. Deformed, yeah. yeah. Old red blood cells. So the red pulp is just a filter, right? It's a network of, of loose tributaries that drains into, ultimately. Splenic vein. Splenic vein, good. And so that, that's your mechanical filter. So you have your, you have your immunologic response, that's a white pulp. You have your mechanical filtration, that's a red pulp. And if that mechanical filtration is is working too well or you have a lot of injured cells what happens in the red pulp into your spleen uh so you'll um get splenomegaly yep. you'll get yeah. uh, so, thrombocytopenia, so you, yeah, so you'll, get thrombocytopenia. Spl- you'll get splenomegaly and the cytopenias uh, that are your general indications for splenectomy and a lot of the hematologic disorders Okay, so the three functions of the spleen to review are mechanical, immunologic, and then the third function? Uh, training for general surgery residents. Yeah, the third function is to give trauma surgeons an operation every once in a while, <laughs> right? So the embryology of the spleen, I, I've often seen this on the ab site. What does it do uh, up to the fifth week of gestation? Uh, so it produces uh, red blood cells, white blood cells. Yeah, so it's one of your primary sites of hematopoiesis, right? And then that goes away after the fifth week of gestation is taken over by the bone marrow. Um, the filtration process, so what is what types of cells does it filter and get rid of? Uh, so it's... Um it filters, uh, like I said, old red blood cells, deformed, damaged red blood cells. Yeah, so mainly red blood cells. And, and we'll talk about a lot of the signs that you might see on a peripheral smear mm-hmm. that you've had a splenectomy. And a lot of that has to do with if the spleen's not there and not functioning, you'll get a lot of these red blood cell products that'll show up in your peripheral smear. Okay, let's talk about the patient who's had a splenectomy or asplenic patients. Uh, what kind of problems do they have? Uh, so they have um, they have loss of opsonization, loss of their IgM. They're more susceptible to um, encapsulated organisms, post-splenectomy, um, uh, sepsis. Good. So overwhelming post-splenectomy sepsis or overwhelming post-splenectomy infection. And how's that different from the standard person who might get infected by one of these organisms? Well, they can't mount uh, an innate immune response. So, they, so, so what happens to the patient? So they get very, very sick. And yeah, or, or die. Yeah. Right. So, so these are rapidly progressive infections that are highly fatal. So the, the rule of a post-splenectomy patient is if they have a fever or signs of infection, you don't wait for confirming tests. You start broad-spectrum antibiotics. And what else can we do? to help prevent this? Uh, You can uh, give them the immunizations against the uh, encapsulated organisms. Good. So you always want to immunize them either before or after surgery, and we'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, And then they also want to have their yearly flu vaccine, Hmm. uh, pneumococcal vaccine, uh, repeated as needed. How about prophylactic antibiotics? For kids. Okay. Yeah. So generally, the rule now is we don't use them. Some people will use them in small kids, but I think if it shows up on the ab site, the answer is going to be we don't routinely give prophylactic antibiotics anymore for a kid who's had a splenectomy or, or most most adults that have had a splenectomy. And the organisms that we're worried about. So uh, this, this shows up once or twice on the ab site. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, they love this. So uh, pneumococcus, uh, H flu, type B, and then meningococcus. Yeah, and it's meningococcal serogroup C. They usually won't ask that much detail. Um, in, in reality, you can get overwhelming infection with a lot of different organisms, but those are the, the three that are, that are common and that are very common on the ab site. Okay, what's the risk of OPSI 
or op- OPSS after splenectomy? Uh, I think it's roughly 1%. Okay. What else do you need to know before you can answer that? The age of the patient. Okay. So what are the big factors that determine your risk? Age and what else? There's really two big factors. Oh, so if they had a, why, why they had a splenectomy in the first place. Yeah. So they'll, they'll, they'll give you four patients, and they'll say which one of these is a high at risk of OPSI. And they'll give you a kid who had a splenectomy for trauma, a kid who had a splenectomy for, for a hematologic disease, an adult who had a trauma splenectomy, and an adult who had a splenectomy for hematologic disease. So a kid with a hematologic disease, yeah. disease specifically, I think beta thalassemia is one that I've, that's, that's often asked. Yeah, but any kid, and the younger, the higher risk, and hematologic disorders as an indication, much higher than trauma splenectomy. Those are the ones at high risk. Okay, so let's move on to indications for splenectomy. So we already talked about trauma. Um, what are some other indications for splenectomy in uh, today's day and age? So um, other indications would be uh, the, your benign hematological uh, disorders, okay. uh, such as idiopathic uh, thrombocytopenia or, uh, or spherocytosis. Um, you, there are some other ones I'm not, I, I don't necessarily know as well, uh, erythrocyte. Uh, issues or deficiencies, and then, and then your hemoglobinopathies. Uh, okay, I think we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about each of those, and then some other indications. Uh, if you have an abscess uh, that has developed in your in your spleen, or Good. or a, a symptomatic splenic cyst, uh, would be one. And, and then there's some rare conditions in primary splenic malignancies. Uh, another one that I think likes to come up, uh, and maybe we'll cover this more in pancreas, is, is uh, gastric varices from a splenic. Oh, uh, we're getting to that. Oh, great. Perfect. <laughs> and, and, then, and then there's malignancies, right? And, and what type of malignancies might we be doing a splenectomy for? Usually these all have to do with uh, the lymphatic system. So your Hodgkin's or non-Hodgkin's. Uh, CLL, um, uh, CML, th- those types of tumors. Yeah, so it's usually either a lymphoma or a leukemia. Um, we used to do it as part of what was called a staging laparotomy for Hodgkin's. That's pretty much gone away because now the imaging is so good at determining what the disease is and it doesn't impact the treatment as much. I s- I'd say if it shows up on a ab site now and it's for a malignancy, most likely it's going to be CLL or CML, and, and we'll talk about that a little bit. Okay, so let's quickly run through a couple of the more common indications that you might see on the app site. ITP, so uh, what causes ITP? So these are antibodies to your platelets. Good, and how does it present? Uh, Usually presents as as a bleeding disorder or issue with bleeding. Uh, uh, Often uh, purpura or ecchymosis, this can also show up as, as nosebleeds or uh, gingival bleeding. Yeah, this is the gum bleeding, the nose bleeding, and the purpura, and you check a CBC and their platelet count is in the toilet. Okay, uh, women get it more than men. In kids, what's the usual cause in kids? What usually precedes this in kids? A viral infection, exactly. Yeah, so this often, in kids, this almost always fi- follows a viral infection. Initial treatment? So you can do uh, IVIG or prednisone. Okay. Um, so usually the first, the first response is steroids and IVIG, and then if they don't respond to that or relapse? Uh, then, then you need to take their spleen out. Good. So that would be your indication, would be failure of, of those medical managements. Um, if their platelet count is extremely low and you need to give them platelets, when would you give them platelets? Only, only if they're bleeding. So we don't preoperatively get them to any position, and it's usually uh, right after you've uh, cut off the blood supply to the spleen, you can give them a transfusion of platelets. Okay, and, and if you do give them platelets pre-op also, you want to give, give them IVIG and then the platelets. Otherwise, they'll just destroy the platelets you give them. Okay, and, and as you mentioned, uh, clipping the artery when you're doing the splenectomy uh, will also help uh, help it from preventing destroy the platelets. What else will that do for you? As long as we're jumping ahead, so intraoperative tips. When might you want to? First thing you do is clip the splenic artery. That's common in these types of patients. What's going to make your case difficult? If they're bleeding, if they have short of bleeding, what's the thing that makes splenectomy more difficult. 
their size. So if they're splenomegaly, right? So you clip the artery, don't you don't clip the vein. And this is a question I've seen too, asking you if you would take the vein first, take the artery. So if you clip the artery, it will shrink the spleen. So splenomegaly, that's a good first maneuver because splenomegaly is probably the case where you struggle the most. Okay, TTP, we won't get into very much. That's an uncommon reason for splenectomy now. First line treatment for TTP. Uh, plasmapheresis. Plasmapheresis, good. And, th- and this is the neurologic symptoms, petechiae, renal failure, fever. And the role of splenectomy? Rare. If, yeah, it's, o- it's, only yeah. For, it's only for failure or refractory disease despite that. Okay, heredis- hereditary spherocytosis, another, another board favorite. So what's the genetics of it? Uh, so this is autosomal dominant. Good. Um, and the protein deficiency? Uh, this is multiple, in- the one they'll ask about. Uh, this is in, um, uh, oh shoot, what is it? It's that membrane protein. Good. I, I would, uh, I could pick it out of a multiple choice. It's, <laughs> what is it? What is it called? Do you remember? Uh, I was thinking Spectrin. Spectrin. I think that's it. That's right. Yep. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Spectrin. Okay. And how do you make the diagnosis? If they ask you on the ab site, what test? Uh, peripheral blood smear. Okay. But if they ask you on the ab site, what test is going <laughs> to confirm your diagnosis? Uh, In addition to visualizing spherocytes. It's the osmotic fragility. Good. Yeah. And, and what does that test do? Um, it, uh, the cells uh, are um, lice under – the cells lice under some osmotic um, pressure. Good. So the cells are very fragile. So you do the osmotic fragility test, the cells lice. Um, hereditary spherocytosis, it's characterized by anemia and splenomegaly. Why? Uh, because the um, the deformed spleens accumulate in the red pulp of the spleen. The deformed red cells, yeah. yeah. So it's your red pulp, it's doing what it should, and it's filtering those red cells, and you get anemia and you get splenomegaly. So when should you do a splenectomy for hereditary spherocytosis? Uh, generally around age five. Okay, so in, in every patient that has HS? Uh, the ones, well, yeah, actually, I think that this is... So, so remember, there's a wide spectrum of yeah. the presentation, which goes from they're completely asymptomatic to they're having anemia and splenomegaly. So the symptom, asymptomatic ones, you don't need to do anything. So it's for, the, it's for the patients that are having symptoms, which are usually anemia, they're requiring blood transfusions or symptomatic splenomegaly, and you don't want to do it before the age of four to six because of the, you want them to develop their immune function. Uh, so you don't want to make them asplenic before that age. Okay. Any other pre-op considerations in these patients? Uh, I think we want to take a look at their gallbladders as well. Excellent. Gallstones. If if you see gallstones in a kid, again on the ab site especially, then you have to look. They they have some hematologic disorder that's causing increased destruction of red cells, causing gallstones. Okay. Anything else you want to do for this kid pre-op? Uh, oh, uh, immunize them against their encapsulated. Uh, Good. And when do you want to do that? Two weeks before. Yeah, a minimum of two weeks before. Okay. All right. So the hemolytic anemia is much less common. Uh, we'll just say there's 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 generally two flavors. There's G6PD deficiency, and then there's pyruvate kinase deficiency, um, and these will also cause red blood cell entrapment, splenomegaly. Which one of these is splenectomy the treatment for? That's going to be your pyruvate kinase deficiency. Excellent. So, so it's going to be pyruvate kinase, G6PD, splenectomy, rarely, rarely indicated. Same thing. You want to wait until they're at least age four to six before you do the splenectomy. Okay, the hemoglobinopathies, thalassemia, sickle cell disease, um, becoming, again, a less common indication for splenectomy. So generally, when would you have to do a splenectomy in these kids? Uh, I know for sickle cell um and I think thalassemia as well, it, they can, uh, these diseases can cause splenic infarction. So Good. when the uh, spleen is no longer uh, functional and the infarction itself is, is so painful, uh, a splenectomy would be indicated. Okay. So if they're having significant pain, if what else can happen to an infarcted spleen? Uh, it can cause... Uh, uh, or it can be a area to harbor abscesses. Good. Uh, so if infection. it becomes super infected. And then the other one is just hypersplenism, which which that's a safe answer for pretty much any of these diseases if they develop hypersplenism that's refractory to medical management. 
Okay, uh, lymphoma, we used to talk about it for Hodgkin's for a staging laparotomy. I, I, I think that would not be a question anymore on the abscite since we really don't do that. Um, for non-Hodgkin's disease? So uh, kind of like you already said, uh, hypersplenism or massive splenomegaly uh, would be reasons uh, for a splenectomy in these patients. Uh, or if their disease is uh, predominantly in the spleen. Good. Uh, and, and if they ask you the most common primary splenic neoplasm, so not metastatic disease, the answer is going to be? Uh, Non-Hodgkin's non -Hodgkin's lymphoma. lymphoma. Good. And the survival is markedly improved in spleen-predominant disease with a splenectomy versus no splenectomy. Okay. If they ask you a leukemia with, that's going to need a splenectomy, what leukemia is it going to be? Uh, I think you mentioned it earlier. That's going to be uh, CLL or chronic lymphocytic. Good. It's going to be CLL, and generally when they, again, develop anemia, anemia makes them stage 3, thrombocytopenia makes them stage 4, and that's when a splenectomy would be indicated. And there's a 60 to 70% response rate with that. Okay, um, iatrogenica imperfecta. So we'll talk about what are some reasons that uh, we might injure the spleen doing procedures or operations. So uh, anytime we're mucking around close to the spleen, I would imagine, so a colonoscopy when you're trying to get around uh, your splenic okay, flexure. So colonoscopy can tear the spleen and the capsule. Anything that's messing with the splenic flexure, good. Uh, kind of in that same line of thought, anything that's messing with your splenogastric ligament, such as a, a Nissen fundiplication or a, a gastric bypass. Good. Uh, uh, along with kind of colonoscopy, if you're doing a left-sided colectomy, you mm -hmm. need to take down that ligament as well, and uh, you could injure the spleen that way. Uh, and then if you're doing a distal pancreatic resection or uh, in the distal part of the pancreas at all, uh, there is always a possibility of uh, either infarcting the spleen or damaging uh, structures next to the spleen. And then anytime we're retracting, I would say, the, so much so that any of those ligaments can, can injure the spleen as well. Okay, good. So we, we talked about some of the operative steps for splenectomy in the trauma <clears throat> abscite review, so we won't need to go through those again. Um, in general, for trauma, if you're in the operating room for a splenic injury, it's a pretty good one. You usually want to do a splenectomy. Any situations, we would do splenic preservation. And again, let's say this, this is for trauma or some other splenic injury. Any patient population, you would try and save the spleen versus just take it out. So in children, you want to... Uh... Yeah. So, so in children, and I, I would say anybody you know, aged less than 10, uh, that's an indication to attempt splenic preservation. Um, you, don't, you generally want to avoid taking out their spleen uh, if you don't have to. So, it, but if they give you any question about splenic preservation, it, it will be in the situation of a child. Okay, so laparoscopic splenectomy. Let, let's again so assume this is an elective or semi-elective approach. What's the positioning? Uh, you can either position them supine or in the uh, uh, be right lateral decubitus. Good. So, so most, most commonly would be in lateral decubitus. And as we talked about, if you have massive splenomegaly, what are some of the things you can do to make your life a little easier? Uh, so we just mentioned one position will help uh, the, remain, the rest of the abdominal contents to fall away from that large spleen. Mm -hmm. um, you can, we, uh, we mentioned uh, taking the artery first to see if the spleen will shrink. Good. Yeah, so it's, so it's positioning and it's clipping the artery first. There's also some data on injecting the artery with epinephrine that will shrink the spleen. I, I probably would just clip the artery uh, rather than do that. Um, you, now you've got a you're, – you're in there and you've got this round, bright red nodule that's in the hilum. So uh, what is that? I, I think you're getting at – greater omentum. I think you're getting at an accessory spleen. The most common location of an accessory spleen is going to be in your hilum. Good. Uh, and you want to take that, especially if you're doing this for one of the hematological reasons, you want to make sure to take that uh, in your resection. Good. Excellent. Okay. Now you've done your splenectomy, and do you want to leave a drain? Uh, you can. Uh, we can do anything. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> We're surgeons. So sort of, sort of like any... Uh, Decision I'll say, on drain I'll placement. Say it's your standard splenectomy. It went fine. What's uh, your answer? 
I would I I don't see a reason for leaving yeah, it. Increased infections with a drain. So is there any scenario you would leave a drain? Uh, particularly if you're concerned that you damage the uh, distal pancreas and you're wanting to pick up a pancreatic leak. Yeah. So if there's any injury, if you've done a distal pancreatectomy, splenectomy, you should leave a drain on the ab site, I'll say. If there's been any injury to the tail of the pancreas, you should leave a drain. Otherwise, the answer is going to be do not leave a drain. And post-splenectomy patients can have some lab abnormalities that can sometimes throw us off. So uh, what would those lab abnormalities be on your CBC? Well, generally, at least transiently, everything goes up. So white blood, white blood cells go up, platelets go up, um, uh, hemoglobin goes up. Okay. And, and which of those goes up the most and the most consistently? Uh, platelets? Yeah, the platelet count goes up consistently. And, and actually, and there's some pretty good data on using the ratio of the white count to the platelet count. So, so if the white count's going up, but the platelet count's going up as well, that's usually better than if the white count's going up and the platelet count is not going up. That's an indication of infection. Okay, now we're going to go through some of, the, some of the favorites, some of the markers on peripheral smear that you've, you've had a splenectomy or that we can see after a splenectomy. So we, we've got a two-column match-em-up. So we've got a list of findings. Uh, deformed membrane, iron granules, denaturated hemoglobin, nuclear remnant, and immature red blood cells. And then we've got a bunch of names. So we'll just go from top to bottom. Okay. So target cells. Uh, target cells are deformed membrane? Nope. Immature red blood cells. Immature red blood cells. Okay. Remember, what's the target? The target's the nucleus. Okay. Right, so that they still have a nucleus. So okay. it's an immature red so blood cell. So target cells, immature red blood cells. Yeah. Howly, how old jolly bodies? Those are uh, from nuclear remnants. Good. Those are nuclear remnants that the spleen should have cleared, uh, but if you're asplenic, it's yeah. not there. How about Heinz bodies? So those are uh, denatured hemoglobin. Good. And that's intracellular denatured hemoglobin. So again, that, that should be filtered out by the spleen. Pappenheimer bodies. Uh, those are from uh, iron granules. Excellent. And spur cells. That's the deformed membrane. That's yeah. a deformed membrane that should be destroyed by a normal spleen. So if you see... Any or all of those in the peripheral smear, then what is that telling you? That they've had a splenectomy. Good. And, uh, and one of the, probably one of the more reliable ones for looking at to tell if someone's asplenic or not uh, of that list. Uh, how old jolly bodies? How old jolly bodies. That, that'll usually be your answer. Yeah. So, it's so, also the most fun one to say. Yeah, exactly. So, so if you have a patient that you did a splenectomy, and you look and you don't see any howl jolly bodies, what is that telling you? Uh, they probably have an accessory spleen somewhere. Yeah, which can be a problem if you, reviews, if you removed it for one of the hypersplenism indications. Okay, post-splenectomy complications, common ones? Bleeding. Good. Bleed, and if it's bleeding, what's it bleeding from? Mm, short gastrics. One of the short gastrics, almost always. And then probably the other complication that you've, would show up on an abscite. Uh, if you've damaged the tail of the pancreas. Yeah, pancreatic fistula. And then obviously we already talked about the overwhelming post-splenectomy, sepsis, and infection. Um, it usually happens months to years after a splenectomy, encapsulated organisms. What, which one of the organisms are the most common for causing OPSS? Uh, pneumococcus. Yeah, pneumococcus is definitely the most common. And the mortality is above 50%. Uh, we talked about the timing of vaccination. You said you wanted to give it two weeks prior, but your your drunk patient who crashed their car didn't get vaccinated, and you took their spleen out emergently. So when do you want to give them their vaccinations? I mean, I think ideally you would give it two weeks post-op. The problem is the trauma, drunk trauma patient probably isn't that reliable, so I think most of these patients are getting um, vaccinations before they leave the hospital. Yeah, so the answer would be before discharge, just because knowing the population, it's better to get everybody then. For optimal immune function, would be two weeks, two weeks after the injury of the operation. Okay, let's uh, move on to acute care pancreas, and, and we'll generally be talking about pancreatitis. So acute pancreatitis, most common causes? Uh, gall, uh, gallstones, alcohol, um, and then I, I guess, you know, less common, there's some autoimmune and yeah, so most common would be gallstones, alcohol, and then the third would be idiopathic. Okay. And then some of the drugs that would cause pancreatitis. Um, yeah, so your antiretrovirals. Um, what else? 
thiazide diuretic. Thiazide diuretics, that's right. Yeah, that's, okay. I think that's the one that I've seen most commonly yeah. on the app site. Okay, so acute pancreatitis, standard management. Patient comes in, abdominal pain, elevated lipase. Uh, bowel rest, IV fluids. Okay. And what percentage of them would resolve with that management? Uh, most, almost all of them. Okay. And w- would you evaluate them for gallstones? Of course, yeah. Okay. And if they have gallstones? Uh, well, if they have gallstones, they'll need uh, a cholecystectomy during that. If there's no evidence of cholecystectomy, if there's evidence of cholecystectomy, they need their duct cleared. Um, if they have gallstones and gallstone pancreatitis, they need a cholecystectomy once their pancreatitis resolves and generally during that same admission. Good. And then again, that would be the upside answer. It would be the same admission, cholecystectomy. And what would you do during that cholecystectomy? Uh, interoperative cholangiogram. And that's an indication for an IOC. Good. Okay. So... We will say, and this has changed a lot over the years, so let's say back when I was taking my boards, uh, they would give you a alcoholic male had pancreatitis, he has low urine output despite the fluids, you get a CT scan and it shows necrotizing pancreatitis, and he's smoldering and then he acutely declines and he needs intubation. So, so what would the answer have been in, in my day? So in the 1920s, yes. I think, uh, no, it, th- this is a patient that you would take to the operating room. Yes. Yeah, so the old answer would have been necrotizing pancreatitis. They're not doing great. You take them to the operating room. Problem was that that's a high mortality, poor outcome procedure. And what's our approach now? Uh, now we continue to, to sit on these patients. Um, if they get worse, you, you continue to treat them sort of like a septic patient and you can start with some broad spectrum antibiotics if they're getting worse uh, and otherwise uh, uh, just continue to treat them with fluid management and NPO status until they get better. Yes. Yeah, so now, now our general principle is <clears throat> if they need a necrosectomy, you want to do that as a delayed operation and delayed is usually at least four weeks later. So you want to get them to at least that four to six week point uh, which has significantly better outcomes than the emergent necrosectomy. So unless there's some other factor that's prompting you to operate, which would be usually something like abdominal compartment syndrome, concern for dead bowel, you want to generally ride these patients out uh, and try to do that in delayed fashion. And, and there's, been, there's even been a randomized trial showing outcomes are better with a late versus early necrosectomy. Okay, so standard question, pancreatitis, how do we uh, predict the severity? Uh, so this is going to be Ranson's criteria, something that they love on standardized tests ever since medical school. Okay, um, and and we don't need to run through that since everybody should be knowing the Ranson's criteria, um, and they don't need us to go over that again. Any other systems we use for predicting severity in pancreatitis that's probably more commonly used now than Ranson's? The the Apache two scores uh, is yeah. one that we use more commonly yeah, so, now. So Apache score is generally a more reliable system for predicting severity and for predicting outcome from pancreatitis. Okay, and then one of the problems with pancreatitis uh, and especially necrotizing pancreatitis was a whole bunch of different terms and classification systems, and and we used to talk about fluid collection, phlegmon, subacute necrosis, necroma, et cetera. So the nice thing now is we there's now a standard revised Atlanta classification system with the common nomenclature that we should all be using now and, and everybody should know about. And so we generally divide pancreatitis into two categories now. It either has necrosis or doesn't. So it's either necrotizing or it's interstitial edematous, which is run-of-the-mill run pancreatitis without necrosis. And then we, they either have a fluid collection or they don't. And then the other factor in that is how long they've had that fluid collection. So, so let's just let's start with non-necrotizing. So they just have run-of-the-mill pancreatitis, and they, they're a week out, and you scan them, and they've got some ill-defined fluid around the pancreas. What's that called? So that's going to be interstitial edema from their pancreatitis. Yeah, but what do we call that? Uh, it, we're how long, how far out? So they're one week out. So that's just going to be your acute pancre- peripancreatic fluid collection. Yeah, so that's now that's acute peripancreatic fluid collection. And then once they're greater than four weeks out and they've got a well-defined fluid collection, what do we call that? That would be a pseudocyst. Good. 
So, so the take-home message there too is there's no more pseudocyst for necrotizing pancreatitis. Pseudocyst is only for when you don't have necrosis. Now for necrotizing pancreatitis. Now they've got, again, it's one week out and they've got a necrosis and fluid collection. So again, this is still in the acute period, so yep. this would be a, an acute necrotic collection. Good. Just like the non-necrosis was acute peripancreatic fluid, this is now acute necrotic collection, or ANC. Now they're more than four weeks out, and they've got a well-defined bunch of fluid and necrosis. So this is not a pseudocyst. This would be walled-off necrosis. Yeah. So in the necrotizing setting, again, there's no pseudocyst. It's walled-off necrosis. And, and again, remember, your goal, especially in necrotizing pancreatitis, is to get them to that at least four-week-out phase. So the way I think about it is if you get them there, you've won the game. So, which is W-O-N, walled-off necrosis. So, so that's how I remember walled-off necrosis. And that's now the common terminology that should be used for pancreatitis. How do you think that will show up on the upside? Uh, I, I think they would, uh, they would give you a patient who has necrotizing pancreatitis, and they're five weeks out, and you scan them, and they've got this well-formed fluid collection, and they would ask you, you know, what is that? And it would be, you know, phlegmon, abscess, pseudocyst, Walled off necrosis. Okay. And your answer would be walled off. They might actually necrosis. even show you an image, uh, an axial yeah, slice or, of a yeah, CT. Or they'll show you an image and they'll ask you, what is this? And, and a lot of people will be tended to answer a pseudocyst. Just remember, if it's necrotizing pancreatitis, that's walled off necrosis. Okay, so we'll talk a little bit about necrotizing pancreatitis. Um, so your main goal, remember, is to delay them. Uh, until they have well-formed fluid and necrotic collections that are easy to debride, because anyone who's gone in on these early knows what a disaster it can be. So, so what's going to force your hand to go in and operate on this patient? If, if you had to have the one factor, infection. Infection. Good. So that's that's the one thing. So if this necrosis gets super infected, that usually forces your hand to go in and, and operate and, and and either an open or minimally invasive approach. Okay, so what's the role then for antibiotics in pancreatitis? Uh, if you just have necrosis, then there is no indication for antibiotics. Okay, so first for just standard pancreatitis, non-necrotic. Any role for prophylactic antibiotics? No. Okay, now for necrotic pancreatitis, necrotizing pancreatitis? No. Okay, and then when would we give antibiotics? So if there is evidence uh, of an infected necrosis or infected pancreatitis. Good. So when you have necrotizing pancreatitis with evidence of infection, which would either be clinical signs, so fever, elevated white count, or... Or you repeat a CT scan and there's there's gas or bubbles in your... Okay. Or what would you do? What would some people do to confirm that? So you could do, you could do an aspiration or percutaneous yeah, so culture. So a CT-guided FNA. A CT-guided FNA with organisms confirming infection. That would be an indication for antibiotics and, and usually is an indication for they need an operation. Okay, so, and which antibiotic would you use? Uh, this would be inapenem or yeah, your I, big hitters. Yeah, I think it would, it would be a carbapenem and usually uh, imipenem if it shows up again on the boards. So, so one of the, I think one of the best advances in this in the approach to necrotizing pancreatitis has been the step-up approach or what we call now the step-up approach so, so one of Jason's real, favorite movies oh yeah yeah it's a great approach it's a great movie so what would be what, how would you define the step-up approach and we'll just say you have a patient who's got bad pancreatitis you scan them and they've got 20 percent necrosis so it starts with your simplest management, and then it progresses. So what's your first so principles of management? First principles of management, we've already sort of mentioned them. These patients need ICU support. You're going to make them MPO, make sure they get resuscitated, and uh, uh, usually uh, some sort of nutrition, either TPN or, or tu distal tube feeds if you can. Okay, good. And then let's say you do all that, and they're failing, and they have signs of infection. And a fluid collection when you scan them. So this is when we're going to add antibiotics uh, in those mm -hmm. patients. Yep. You you may um, try to percutaneously drain them. Yes. Yeah, so uh, this so the step up the next step up is a percutaneous drain. Okay. And so you put in the percutaneous drain and you get some of the fluid out and you rescan them and the drain's in good position. It's still got 
Still got some fluid in there, though. Uh, so if, as long as they're uh, continue to improve, you, you probably don't need to do anything. Uh, but if they're getting worse, the next step up would be uh, either uh, an attempt at additional drainage, either endoscopically or laparoscopically. Yeah, so actually, so actually the next step up would be upsizing the drain, upsizing and repositioning drains. And then if they fail that, what's the next step of the step-up approach? But Is it endoscopic? Is well, it, if it's if it's amenable to endoscopic, that would be the next step. Yeah. So so when we're saying the step up, we're talking about the the, the randomized study of the step up approach. The next step in that approach is the video assisted retroperitoneal debridement. So so as you mentioned, there's a whole bunch now of of endoscopic interventions you can try. There's you know endoscopic transgastric drainage. Those are usually best for non necrotizing pancreatitis, like a pseudocyst. That's, that's great, I think, for endoscopic drainage. Um, but, again, unless you have, you know, a, a great Houdini gastroenterologist who can do a complete necrosectomy endoscopically, the next step of the step-up would be a video-assisted retroperitoneal debridement, which means you go through the flank, you just follow that drain into the collection, uh, and you can use a laparoscope to help you see as you get deeper, and you remove the infected pancreas and the fluid, and then you leave big drains. And that's something and, I think has changed with the, even within my time taking the outside in the last years. I can remember I would have never said percutaneous drainage for for yep. uh, for pancreas for you know, necrotic infected pancreas, but now that is a legitimate answer. Yeah, so. and and that was shown in that study, randomized study, to have better outcomes compared to the standard open approach, which would be an open necrosectomy. Um, so again, we, we talked about the, the ideal case for an endoscopic drainage is probably a pseudocyst or, or a relatively simple fluid collection. Um, the video-assisted retroperitoneal debridement is the step-up approach. The outcomes in that study were significantly better in step-up versus open. Um, so well, let's just say, though, that you had to bite the bullet and do an open necrosectomy. So, so first off, now, how do you expose the pancreas? And we, we talked about this a little in the trauma talk, and we'll just go through it again. Uh, so you're going to open your gastrocolic ligament. Excellent. That's your first maneuver to get into the lesser sac, and now you're looking at some dead pancreas and fluid. Uh, so then you're, you're, you may aspirate, uh, try to, to pick out a... Uh, local fluid collection and aspirate and for cultures or grab for cul grab tissue for culture. Okay. So, so what's your principle of a necrosectomy in terms of there, there's going to be some dead pancreas, some pseudo dead pancreas, and some healthy pancreas. So, how do you remove that necrotic so tissue? So, you want to do as limited of, of a resection as you can. So, the the frankly dead pancreatic tissue needs to come out and. Anything else that you can preserve, you preserve. Yeah, so most times your, your dissection instruments is your yank hour suction. So you, you just want to take what is already detached or what comes easily, anything that's fixed. So you don't want to do aggressive debridement. You don't want to do sharp debridement. It's generally a suction dissection. Um, so, and so, so you open the gastrohepatic ligament or gastrocolic ligament to get into the lesser sac. Uh, let's say, in which we'll see often in the bad pancreatitis, you can't get in a lesser sac. That, that is like a rock. Is there any other way to get to the pancreas? So you could go uh, and try for an inframesocolic approach. Good. The other way is you lift up the colon and you go through the transverse mesocolon, just like you would if you're making a window for a retrocolic root limb. That's the other way to access the body of the pancreas, often useful in these cases. Okay. So, again, we're just going to do your final exam. So you have a 55-year-old male, alcoholic with pancreatitis, and you get a CT scan. He's seven days into it, and it shows some peripancreatic fluid, but he does not have necrosis. So this is going to be your acute necrotic uh, uh, fluid collection. Okay, so if, so if he doesn't have necrosis, that's going to be your acute peripancreatic fluid collection. Right. If he does have necrosis? Then it's, then it's your ANC or your acute Necrotic, necrotic collection. collection, good. And now you have the guy who's at six weeks, and he's got that well-formed fluid collection, and he's got pancreatic necrosis. That's your – he's won. Good. You've won. Now, I've won. Now you have a case out of it, right? So that's, that's, walled, right. that's your walled-off necrosis. Excellent. 
Now you have a 45-year-old female who had gallstone pancreatitis with no necrosis. She's now nine weeks out with abdominal pain, and you've got that big 10-centimeter round fluid collection. Pseudocyst. And if I push hard enough, I get a case out of that That's one, too. That's a pseudocyst. Excellent. And what would your case be for that, as long as we're on it? So depending on where it's at, uh, if it abuts the posterior wall of the stomach, then I could do... Which it always will on the ab site. Which it always will. Then uh, an endoscopic uh, gastro... Cystic. No, no, what's, what's your operation going to be? Remember, you're so taking the surgical lab site. You're going to do an operation. Yes, sir. Cyst gastrostomy. Good. So it's a cyst gastrostomy. Open, laparoscopic. Um, okay. So now we're going to do our rapid-fire session. Are you ready? Uh, I am until I pass the microphone to Jason. Okay. Well, th- this will be either one of you can answer. So, again, this is this is just... You can't ask any questions. We don't want to hear any discussion. This is looking for those buzzwords uh, in the question that should alert you to what the answer is before you even finish reading the question. Okay, blood supply to the gastric pouch and a gastric bypass. The left gastric. Left gastric artery, excellent. Okay, now you're doing a gastric bypass or a Nissen, either one. You're opening the gastrohepatic ligament on the lesser curve, and suddenly you get arterial bleeding from an anomalous vessel that was running through the gastrohepatic ligament. So this would be your uh, a left hepatic, a replaced left Repla- hepatic, a replaced right, or an left, hepatic. left hepatic, which comes off of uh, most commonly the SMA. Nope. Or most commonly off of the less gastric. Yeah, right. And just remember, that's the blood vessel of your pouch, so that's what it's going to be coming off of if you're up in that area. Okay, so you have a kid who has a viral illness. Then two weeks later, he's got petechiae and bruising and a platelet count of 50. So this is your most common presentation for a child with ITP. Good. You have a six-year-old who presents with fevers, right upper quadrant pain, and has multiple gallstones on a right upper quadrant ultrasound. Hereditary spherocytosis. Good. Or, or one of the hematologic Hematolog- diseases with red cell destruction. Okay, you have a patient who got a splenectomy for ITP, and he has a peripheral smear that shows no howl jolly bodies. Accessory spleen. And what would you do? Tagged red blood cell scan. Good. You would do a spleen scan and remove those accessory spleens. Okay, you've got a small bowel obstruction in a patient one year after gastric bypass. Internal hernia. And... You're, what are you doing? I'm taking him to the OR. Good. Operative exploration. You've got fever and abdominal pain after bariatric surgery. Leak. Leak, and you're going to explore them. Good. So, okay, you've got a patient who had a normal screening colonoscopy and was sent home, came back to the ER with abdominal pain and just not feeling good, has tachycardia, hematocrit of 19, and abdominal pain. They're bleeding from my atrogenic splenic injury. Excellent. You've torn their splenic capsule from your colonoscopy. Okay, you did a splenectomy for thrombocytopenia, and the platelet count is still less than 100 postoperatively. Again, I'm worried about an accessory spleen. Good. Accessory spleen or spillage during your splenectomy. Okay, so you're worried about they have some functional splenic tissue. Okay, patient who had three prior episodes of severe pancreatitis that all resolved now presents with hematemesis. I'm worried about splenic vein thrombosis and gastric varices. Excellent. That's, that's going to be gastric or esophageal varices from splenic vein thrombosis. And your treatment? Is a splenectomy. Splenectomy. Excellent. Um, you have a patient who had necrotizing pancreatitis for three weeks, is now febrile and hypotensive. And a CT-guided FNA shows gram-positive cocci. I'm going to take him to the OR. Okay. So, so it's the step-up approach. So intravenous antibiotics and percutaneous drainage. Percutaneous drain. Okay. Um, you have an EGD. Or sorry, this was the patient with the uh, splenic vein thrombosis. So your EGD shows proximal gastric varices treatment um splenectomy yeah will that resolve the varices yes yes excellent okay four weeks after a episode of acute pancreatitis with abdominal pain the ct scan shows a two centimeter pseudocyst uh observation okay now the ct scan shows an eight centimeter pseudocyst 
um, cyst gastrostomy. Good. And and so what's your size cutoff you're using? Uh, six. Yeah, usually it, it's six centimeters. If it's greater than six, it, it will tend not to resolve. Okay, and I think that's all of our questions. Um, bonus question. Oh, boy. This was in the news this past week. I'm definitely not going to know it then. The newest organ discovered in the digestive tract this week. The mesentery. Excellent. Yeah, I laughed when I read that, but somebody uh, published it, so now it's the newest organ. Uh, apparently, the anatomy uh, anatomy journals or, or the anatomy books are being are being revised. Please and, tell me somebody named it after themselves. Is it? Yeah. If not, they missed a big opportunity. Nope. The, it's the mesentery. <laughs> yeah, they they anatomically they they think the mesentery is one continuous organ we not just a bunch of different pieces to each organ and it's now it's now its own organ this will not show up on the website i can guarantee that a big congratulations to the mesentery <laughs> all right and that's all we have uh thanks for joining us for this this hodgepodge and uh as usual these guys crushed it and hopefully every one of you will crush it on the boards all right. Thanks, Dr. Martin, for being here again with us today and for your expertise in the, in, in the ab site. We, uh, thanks, everybody out here out there for listening. These have been hugely popular. We appreciate all your suggestions. We're trying to get to as many of them as we can, and we're going to keep it up up until the ab site. Until next time, dominate the day.